Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Welcome back, everybody, to Blockchain Won't Save the World. I'm really excited for today's guest. He's somebody that I've been following for a long time. He's a developer, a solutions architect, an influencer, and an educator. It is Mr. Chris Bennett, also known as the Blockchain Beard Guy. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Anthony. This is this is really an honor to be a part of. Not at all. And honestly, Chris, I, from very early days working in blockchain, some of the videos that resonated best with me or the content that resonated best with me was you and a, a dash cam and a two-hour drive from Denver to the airport or wherever you were heading towards and just talking practically and pragmatically about blockchain as a technology, decentralization, and what it meant for uh, traditional enterprises and governments. And what I really loved about the, the tone that you took was it was always kind of honest, it was always humble, it was always pragmatic, and very, very far away from the hype that we've seen in different evolutions of blockchain, whether that be in the ICO bubble, or you know what continues to be a lot of content put out saying blockchain will do this, blockchain could do this, blockchain might do that. I want to get away from all that today and, and maybe do a mini version of your uh, your traditional beard cast, but obviously on, on, on a podcast. So thanks again for, for doing what you do. Oh, of course, of course, my pleasure. And, and you know, thanks for doing what you do. You know, I, I think the theme that you're taking with the show, the focus on the pragmatic and, and cutting through the hype, um, that's really what we need right now. Um, there's, there's a big lack of that, um, especially as, as technologists. You know, our job is, is to get excited and enthusiastic about technology. But sometimes we, we let that blind us a little bit to some of the pragmatic concerns. So um, I'm, I'm really excited that you're putting out this content and I can't wait to see where it goes. So maybe this isn't the podcast we want, but maybe it's the podcast we need. <laughs> can't it be both? It is for me. I, w I wish it, I wish it can be. Maybe only the audience will tell us that. So so hopefully we're going to get some good feedback. Chris, I want to start with an introductory question. I don't think in 2020 there are any blockchain natives, right? We no one was born into blockchain. It's still a relatively young space. Tell us about how you got into working with blockchain technology. Oh, you know, uh, I I kind of had a, a similar experience that that I think a lot of people do. At least I've heard a lot of other people tell this story, and that was. For me, for the longest time, I, I heard this word blockchain, and I just thought it was another word for Bitcoin. And so for, for quite a long time, an embarrassingly long, embarrassingly long time, I just kind of ignored it. My thinking there was, hey, I, I get it. It's Bitcoin. It's digital money. Conceptually, it makes sense. Um, but I'm an IT guy. I'm a technology guy. I'm, I'm not a finance guy. I'm not an accounting guy. And, and so I kind of dismissed it. And it wasn't until I, I really dug in and I started to take a look at, at what all this blockchain stuff was about, because it, it just, it didn't seem to be going away. People didn't stop talking about it. It, it didn't go away after the news cycle reset. And, and when I really had this understanding that it was more than Bitcoin, I, I always talk about it, I'm a little bit of a, a sci-fi nerd, um, but I, I talk about it in terms of the matrix. It was the biggest red pill moment of my life. You know, I, I woke up in there in the ship with Morpheus and, and the world just never looked the same. Um, but what really got me excited about blockchain, Anthony, is, is when I had this realization what it really was and that Bitcoin was really just the tip of the, the blockchain iceberg. 
I got excited because I'd seen all this before. This wave of familiarity rushed over me. You know, I'm, I'm this big believer that, that we have two kind of moves in the technology world. We have evolutions. Things get in, incrementally better, faster, more efficient, cheaper, and, and that's certainly exciting. You know, but once in a generation, we have revolutionary uh, technologies come along. And those are the ones that, that upend and redefine so many aspects of the world. And I think blockchain fits into that. So I got real excited because I said, hey, the, the last time I saw something like this coming, we called it dot com. We called it the Internet. The, the wave before that called that the PC revolution. And, and finally, here's this generational change coming along where I'm, I'm in a time and place where I'm out there. I'm, I'm in the market. I'm in the field. Uh, when, when the Internet came along, I, I was still in college. You know, it was a little, little too early for me to do anything. So um, I decided to jump in with both feet. And it's, it's been a wild ride, but haven't looked back since. And, and as you look back, Chris, were there any particular stories or examples or real-world use cases that you saw early that, that as you were flipping from the it's Bitcoin, it's digital money to actually this could change the way enterprises and governments work. Do any of those kind of early examples stand out as kind of key learnings for you? The one that I, I think really peeled my eyes back uh, when I started to think about how to apply the technology was years ago, 17, 18 years ago now, um, I, I worked with a, a small company, I won't mention names, but our entire focus was on performing auditing services uh, in, in the cable television industry. So the, the, I, I never really knew this till I, I got involved, but the contracts that these cable TV networks draw up with uh, the, the MSOs, the service providers, the cable companies, they are incredibly nuanced and complex. It's just an artifact of the way they do business and neither side has any desire to change that. And so what ends up happening is uh, once a quarter, uh, these cable companies will just kind of take an estimate, put a thumb to the wind, how much they, they think they owe uh, those networks for the content they're broadcasting, um, and they'll write a check. And, and so our entire job was just to come in uh, once, twice a year, uh, go through the books, get everything squared up, and, and take a big fat percentage off the top. And at the time I left, uh, back in 2004, that was over $20 million a year, that, that business. So we're doing over $20 million a year in revenue. So there's $20 million just because you have two participants who have contractual terms so complex, they, they can't understand how to operate with one another. You know, that's, that stood out to me as, hey, here's one use case where you, you could completely remove this business from, from that value chain and put $20 million back into that ecosystem. Um, and when I, when I started having those kind of realizations, that's when I really knew that the technology had some potential. I think that sounds like a pretty good aha moment. And it's it's usually the ones that are the most relatable, right? It's when somebody says to you, if we can digitize all of the data from the ocean, we'll be able to monetize things that we've never done before and create abundance for civilization henceforth. And you sort of think, yeah, okay, oceans, data, civilization. I hear you, I get it, but I don't get it. But actually, if, if you can anchor it back to something that you're familiar with or a place that you've worked or, or a problem that's familiar to you or, or those around you, I think it, it becomes a much more relatable story. So I want to I also ask a little bit more about the blockchain beard guy origin story, if you will, because you've kind of been in technology for a very long time. And it's, I guess, quite a leap from 
the dark and dingy worlds of IT development and managing and operating systems into the limelight, the spotlights, the um, the invitations, the conferences, and setting up entirely new businesses in this, te- this technology that's only been around for a few years. Talk us through how you got there. <laughs> uh, a long commute is, is the short answer to that. So uh, my wife and I, we live in a small town, uh, Elizabeth, Colorado. It's, it's about 45 miles uh, southeast of Denver. So it's it, to go downtown, depending on traffic, it's, it's anywhere between 60, 90 minutes each way. And at the time, our, our office was downtown, my previous company. So um, I, I had a good two to three hours a day where I was just in the car. And you very quickly get out of the city and, and uh, everything out here is just flat, straight, two-lane country roads. In fact, when I started doing the videos, the, the two most common questions I got were, um, what kind of car is that? I, people always want to know that. But then more entertainingly, how come there are no turns? I, I just watch these videos and you're just driving in this straight line. Uh, well, that's, that's Eastern Colorado for you. So I had time to fill. <clears throat> and really where this started is I, I found... Uh, so many times professionally, I was answering the same questions over and over and over uh, with customers and clients. And, and they were very, very good questions. And it kind of started to surprise me that more of this practical information wasn't out there. So I'd kind of been toying with the idea of putting together some videos addressing some of these these general topics. And this was about the time that um, I had my red pill realization with blockchain. Um, so it was kind of the convergence of those two ideas one day. I, uh, I just kind of had a, a thought driving home. Um, hey, I, I should just stick a GoPro on the window and just talk about some of this stuff and post a video on LinkedIn and see where it goes. Uh, so gave it a try one day. And honestly, the, the blockchain peered kite was just kind of a spontaneous moment. It, it wasn't anything I thought of. I just started recording that first video and I thought, hey, here's here's kind of a thing to call myself. So gave it a try. And honestly, I, I wasn't expecting this content to go anywhere. So I posted a few videos on LinkedIn and just the, the uh, support. Um, that I got the feedback that I got from the community was great uh, really really kind of seemed to be providing value to folks and the rest was kind of history it was a, a great way to to fill in the latter part of the drive there and it was really a, a great way to connect with other people I, I hope you'll have a similar experience here with your podcast but one thing I found is uh, when, when you have this focus on the pragmatic it becomes really, really easy to generate content because you share your thoughts uh, and it opens up a discussion. There's there's so many people who come out and want to share their stories and their approaches and their techniques. So it it snowballs pretty easily and and it becomes very, very simple to to come up with content, topics, ideas, um, just because of the great community out there. Thanks for that, Chris. And I mean, there's there's the pro tip for anybody looking to get into blockchain is if you want to become an influencer or if you want to, to build a following, move a long way outside of a town um, and try and find somewhere that's got really straight roads. I, I would say the true advice is there's a guy named Samson Williams you need to connect with. And then what you do is you just steal all of his good ideas and take credit for it. I mean, if we're really cutting to the meat of, of how to get into the influencer game, um, I, I think that's the quickest route to success. 
I'm a big fan of Samson and um, and we, we've shared a number of, of wonderful moments together. And I'm, I was curious to get him on the podcast, but I think, you know, he's definitely for season two. Season two, I'm, I'm looking at the, the future rather than the now. And, and Samson is currently promoting a book, I think, around blockchain in space, which may be a little bit further away from the core tenets of what I'm hoping this podcast is for now. But, but I wish him luck up there and uh, I'm sure he's going to do good things. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure for anyone who doesn't know Samson, this is uh, probably a mysterious conversation, but the, the thought of him floating around in space just uh, delights me. I love that. I, 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 that's an image that I think I definitely didn't need, but uh, it's one that I could, I could imagine is going to happen at some stage for sure. Chris, let's, let's, get, let's get a level down now. So actually from, from where you found yourself talking about blockchain and why you thought it was interesting, you actually pivoted a, away from de- delivery to an extent actually to focusing on education and training. And I guess you saw that there was a bit of a gap in the market or you thought that you know, this, is, this is not being done well. Um, and so actually, you know, one of the main things that I know you for is when I was working at Deloitte, you trained you know, the guts of 50 of our global blockchain leaders, architects, developers, um, business analysts over the course of two days in a, in a small box in Dublin, which was fantastic. And I'm hoping we can do kind of a, a microcosm of that, that training. Obviously, don't want to give away the secret source, but one of the things that people have asked is, what's the basic architecture or what, what are the basic components of a blockchain network? So maybe we take Hyperledger and Ethereum or you know, any of the ones that you, you tend to prefer talking to. But what are, the, what are the main things that we need to know about? Yeah, it's, it's a really, really good question, Anthony. I, I think I would just start off my answer by saying to, to folks who are just getting involved in blockchain, um, understand that, that blockchain is a very, very broad term. And there are a lot of different architectures and approaches that fit under that umbrella. And of course, there's, there's a, a lot of controversy and debate within the community about what actually constitutes a blockchain. But on one end of the spectrum, we have our, our public permissionless platforms, the platforms like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And, and these are typically true peer-to-peer networks. Um, so we have nodes or miners on the network, and they are all performing three functions simultaneously. The first is that they're, they're keeping a redundant copy of the ledger, right? One of the core tenants of blockchain. Uh, the second is any smart contract code, they're executing that, running any applications built on top of that ledger. Uh, and then number three, they're all working amongst each other to ensure that not only are, are they recording the same data across all these instances of the ledger, uh, but just as importantly, that data is being recorded in the same order on all those instances. Then if we slide over to the, the other side of the spectrum, uh, we get into platforms like Hyperledger, to an extent multi-chain, some of the more enterprise-focused platforms. Corda kind of fits into there. And that's typically where we, we start to slide away from a true peer-to-peer architecture um, into something which is still very decentralized, but we, we do have... Um, specific server roles. And for performance reasons, many times, we're taking those three different functions and we're, we're splitting those out into distinct node types to let them just specialize in that. So that's kind of a, an overlay of, of the technical architecture. I, I think um, what's important for architects, developers, administrators, um, and, and even folks in the business to remember 
is that technical architecture properly viewed, at least in the enterprise space, is shared IT infrastructure between organizations. And, and this is the part of blockchain, um, at least in the enterprise space, that is very, very new to us. We're, we're very used to going out and acquiring technology uh, as an organization, and that's ours. We own it. We paid for it. We have an administrator to it. We have full access to it. If, if we want to um, remove some components and change some components, we, we absolutely can. We own it completely and entirely. When you get into the blockchain world, that's no longer the case. Uh, you, you just own a portion of it. Um, and, and this introduces some new concerns to a blockchain project that we're, we're just not typically used to. So, sorry, I'm, I'm probably starting to, to wander off the beaten path on the answer there, but hopefully that, that for anyone who's new to the space, that, that kind of uh, gives you a little bit of lay of the land architecturally. No, I think that's a great overview, Chris. And this is where you get into the good stuff is obviously there's the technical description of how blockchain works, but then there's the overlay on that, which is what changes or what's different. And you talked about a shared IT infrastructure, right? For, for decades, IT CIOs, you know, companies are happy running their own applications, their own cloud architecture, on-premise, whatever it might be. And, and the goal was to an extent, up to, up to a point we were talking about digitization, we were talking about adding apps, making it easier to do certain things, doing more with our data, all under our own control, right? All under our own steam. And, and then once we kind of reached peak digital, maybe sort of five or six years ago, then it became a little bit about simplification. Is saying, you know, we want to take applications out of the stack. We want to move more of our workflows to cloud, make our make our IT infrastructure functional, componentized, easy to run, but take out the difficult bits. Then along comes blockchain architecture and say, well, actually, you're going to share information. You're going to run nodes. You're going to have information and data move differently than it has before. And from a CIO's perspective, unless you're a true believer or, or a pioneer or an early adopter, that's completely against your direction of travel or the kind of the imperatives that you've had for the last little while um, and I wonder you know as you talk to people in technology people who are working enterprise how do you help walk them into that it's a very different way of working but don't worry it'll be fine <laughs> you know I, I think you can look at it from or, or through two different lenses through the technology lens so much of blockchain is about forgetting or relearning a lot of these um, unquestioned principles, these these universal truths that as technologists we've always accepted. You know, for example, things like as you scale up the size of a blockchain network, performance goes down, not up. Um, we're not used to that. In, in the world of distributed solutions, we scale up the network and things get faster. So for the technologists, they're, they're, it just involves a, a very different way of thinking, a very unintuitive way of thinking. On the, the business side, I think we're, we're starting to see the hand be forced a little bit. And what I mean by that is the problems that blockchain really aims to solve and the ones that, in my mind, it solves the best in the enterprise space are problems we are just beginning to explore and they're just showing up on, on people's radar. You know, I, I'm always uh, in the digital world. Um, you know, working with blockchain, heads down in front of a laptop, 
So when I get a, a little time off, I like working with mechanical things, working on old bikes and cars. Um, I still get to use the engineering part of my brain, but it's it's not digital. So I just out of personal interest, uh, follow a lot of what happens in the automotive industry. And the big show in the automotive industry every year is the Geneva Auto Show, uh, which typically happens in March. And quite organically, this wasn't planned, uh, it just kind of came up naturally. One of the big themes at the Geneva Auto Show last year was that different participants in the automotive industry are going to have to team up that cooperation is the new competition. And that's because if you look at what's going on in the auto industry right now, they're facing two enormous challenges. Uh, number one is uh, electric vehicle technology, electrifying our platforms, moving away from internal combustion. And the second very big engineering challenge is autonomous vehicles. And Either one of those technologies by themselves are far too big, far too complex, and far too expensive for any single manufacturer to pursue alone. Um, so we heard last year about Ford and Volkswagen teaming up to co-develop EV technology. Um, and when you think about what they're doing, it's, it's pretty impressive. They are going to co-develop technology then they're going to put it into both of their respective cars, and then they're going to compete with each other to sell vehicles with that technology that they co-developed. Um, and it's not just Ford and Volkswagen. Last year, Daimler, the parent company of Mercedes-Benz, announced that um, they're going to partner up with BMW to spend over a billion dollars developing autonomous vehicle technology because they want to compete with Uber. You know, five years ago, uh, I, I don't know about you, but if you told me, hey, Mercedes and BMW are going to team up to the tune of a billion U.S. dollars to co-develop technology that they're then going to use to compete with each other, I, I would have said you were crazy. But these are the new business challenges that we're facing. And if you think about, okay, this is the business landscape. How do we as technologists support that? Um, you start to see where blockchain steps in. So if, if Ford and Volkswagen are going to work together, whose database are they going to keep that information in? Who's going to own it? Who's going to maintain it? Who's going to pay for it? Um, if that relationship breaks up, where, where does the data go? These are very, very difficult questions to answer in a world of centralized technology. And I, uh, just to, to kind of put a bow on it, I read yesterday in the news, because we're, we're hearing so much about the spread of coronavirus right now, that this year's Geneva Auto Show, the upcoming one, has actually been canceled. And I think that if things continue to track the way they are with this virus, one of the outcomes that we're going to see is uh, we, we really don't understand our supply chain the way that we think we do. And uh, here in the States, at least, we're already starting to have conversations about, boy, if this supply chain breaks down, we're, we're not in a position domestically anymore where we can really manufacture very much. We're very, very dependent on overseas manufacturing. If businesses come out of this and one of their takeaways is, hey, we've, we've got to investigate our supply chain. Uh, we've, we've got to put some, some uh, fault tolerance in there. We have to ensure business continuity vis-a-vis -vis our supply chain. That's, that's the kind of area where blockchain really shines. So I, I think, you know, kind of coming back to answer your question, Anthony, on the business side, the smart executives are starting to see that the ground underneath them is changing quickly. Um, and, and the smart ones are starting to adapt. 
I think you've put it, put put a couple of really nice examples out there, automotives and supply chains, and then also the who owns the data challenge. Is that actually we've we've had cooperation models before, but oftentimes the the technology we've used were things like portals, which again could have a very large volume of data in it, which you might not want to have hacked. Um, you've had EDI, lots and lots of point to point connections, which I'm sure you'll know from your previous work is a very very inefficient way of of managing information. The the way that I kind of peel it back is saying. This is a technology that can help us solve problems that we could never do previously alone by working together. And it's likely to involve data. It's going to be about sharing information that may be competitive. It may be particularly proprietary to one or, or multiple of those providers. But to get an end-to-end view of you know, how much product there is, let's go back to our coronavirus example. If there's you know, a certain amount of vaccine in a certain geographical space, Certain parties may only have visibility on what they have in stock. And if you want to optimize that particular system, you know, you want to try and see if you can have a, a vaccine availability database. You don't want any one person to know where all the vaccines in the United States are. That's really just not a helpful thing. But we can agree the standards of you know, certain types of vaccines at certain times. If we can I all agree that we'll share certain information on the amounts and where they are, we can try and optimize and reallocate to help reduce the effects of a pandemic or a particular crisis at any one time. You don't want to create a centralized database or organization with you know, hundreds of people working in their IT team to do that. That's just inefficient and risky. Rather say, let you manage your own businesses, run it in isolation, but connect up across the piece. We'll definitely date the podcast by mentioning coronavirus in here. And you know, hopefully three weeks from now, we'll all be saying, oh, that wasn't that just the common cold. But I think it's, it gives you a relevant example. Absolutely, you know, and and uh, I, I'm with you. I, I hope that in a few weeks, this is kind of behind us and uh, uh, just a bad memory. Um, but I, I think even if it works out that way, it's it's certainly causing us to think about some of these issues that, that we otherwise wouldn't have. Because even even if this isn't the event that exposes some of those vulnerabilities, you have to imagine that's right around the corner as we just continue to become more and more interconnected. For sure. You spend obviously a good amount of your time with Blockchain Training Alliance and doing kind of education and training work, but you do get your hands dirty from time to time. Am I right? You get pulled back into a little bit of uh, architecture and development work from time to time. I, we do. You know, it's it's very common. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll go out and teach a class and, and folks ask, hey, can you stick around and, and help us? Um, I always use the baseball analogy. You know, our, our classes are like teaching you about baseball. Um, we'll teach you about the form and how to hold the bat and how to swing, you know, all in the classroom. But that first time you, you stand up to the plate, it, it's sometimes nice to have the coach there. So, uh, yeah, we, we do a bit of that as well. Very good. So I'm really curious to know, you know, obviously, I, I know, so privately, we won't talk about who you've worked for, but you've worked with some of the um, largest and best known companies in the world on blockchain initiatives, which I think is, is phenomenal for a lumberjack from Denver. But um, I'd love to know some of the, the kind of typical questions or typical worries or concerns that some of your clients have had over the, over the time. What are the things people typically kind of worry about? And, and how do you help to, to kind of allay their fears? You know, great question. I, I think at least what I see right now, we're still so early on in this trajectory that so much of the fear just comes from misunderstanding. And that's that's really what drove me into the education space, besides just really personally enjoying the work. 
there's a big misconception right now in the enterprise space that blockchain is this technology that is designed to uh, replace legacy systems. So a conversation I, I seem to have at least once a week is, uh, hey, Chris, thanks for telling me about all this blockchain stuff. Uh, this sounds great. Um, I absolutely agree with you. This is going to be transformative. Uh, we, we definitely have blockchain on our radar. But, you know, maybe maybe come back and, and talk to us next year uh, as far as actually doing something. Yeah, we, we just upgraded our ERP system, our CRM system, our HR system. It was a, a very long, complex project. It, it went over schedule, over budget. Um, we had this army of consultants camped out in our conference room for six months. So, yeah, all this blockchain stuff sounds great, but we just don't have any appetite right now organizationally to, to get into another uh, legacy system upgrade a replacement. And in my opinion, blockchain properly used, all else being equal, isn't this replacement for legacy systems. Um, it's, it's this layer that you can build above them and connect them to a larger ecosystem. Um, one of the examples I, I always talk about in class is you know, imagine that I'm a manufacturer. Um, I manufacture, let's say, electronic devices. I'm somebody like Apple. But I don't sell them. I, I rely on you. I rely on this network of resellers to go out to the market and, and sell my items for me. Well, if you go out and you meet with a potential customer and you have a good meeting and at the end of the meeting they say, uh, Anthony, that sounds great. Uh, we, we want to place an order for a thousand crates of widgets. Well, you're very likely to walk out of that meeting, uh, pull out your smartphone, uh, log into your internal CRM system. That could be something behind your firewall. That could be Salesforce out in the cloud. Um, and you're going to go find that opportunity in your CRM system because it's not an opportunity anymore. It's, it's a deal now. So you need to, to update it. Well, if you go and you do that, how does that change get propagated into my ERP system? So the folks on the, the factory floor um, can start manufacturing those widgets to fulfill that order. So a lot of, of easing and allaying fears on the business side, I've found, is really just education and, and clearing up some of those misunderstandings. And when you start to talk to um, uh, an executive who really has their pulse on the business and the market and the directions things are going, um, I found that once you clear up some of those misconceptions, a lot of the value proposition behind blockchain becomes fairly self-evident. I think that's well said, Chris. And I'd, I'd share that. I think the complexity to implement blockchain, obviously, it's not something that's kind of done in an afternoon, but it's probably less complicated than, than many think it is. At a basic level, blockchain is about data aggregation, right? It's saying that I've got some information, my supplier's got some information, their supplier's got some information. And if we all work together, we can present a single view of what's happened to a product, or we can get a, a real-time view of stock levels that we couldn't get to before. You know, or we can reduce the risk of, of a particular process somehow. And, and then we just, need to, we just need to find a way to agree to how we spend on that, how we project manage that, um, and how we get information to feed back and forth. It's really not that much more complicated when you're talking about data aggregation. You know, single customer views have been something that you know, in, in technology we've talked about for a long time. Instead of just talking about customer from an enterprise perspective, what we're talking about is a single supply chain view or a single industry view, or a single competitive view, or a single regulatory view. And so if you're looking at saying, well, that, that's a real benefit because now we can make decisions based on that. We can optimize a system based on that. Um, you've got a much, much more compelling story. Challenge is, as you're going into implementation, you need one, two, three, five, 
10 parties all working together to make that happen. And I guess that's where stuff gets complicated. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think so much of it is we just have this very siloed view of our business processes. We just kind of are siloed into the, the part that we're responsible for. Traditional technology hasn't done us a very good job giving us that end-to-end view. And I think we're just starting to explore uh, technology that can. It's very common if you're talking to, to folks on the business side about this technology for the, the ROI conversation to come up. What's the ROI of blockchain? And certainly that's something you can calculate traditionally. Hey, if, if we can take uh, the XYZ process and make it 10% more efficient, um, what does that do to the bottom line? Th- those are typically easy calculations to make. The more difficult ones, and I think where blockchain really potentially adds a lot of ROI, is not in what it can do, but oftentimes what it can prevent from happening. You know, I I look at Boeing right now. I I think they're a great example of this. Not to say that using a technology like blockchain would would do anything to solve um, some of the mechanical or design issues they're facing right now on the 737. But I, I have to imagine that if they could go back and they could tell the story about every decision point behind the design of that aircraft and who signed off on it and when and every part and component um, from every supplier and why that decision was made. If, if they had a much more rich, detailed audit trail, again, it wouldn't solve some of those mechanical and design issues, but I'm willing to bet that their stock price would be in a much different place. And we see this all the time. I don't know if it's, it's settled yet, um, but uh, you know, they, they call themselves Ireland's most famous brand, Kerrygold Butter. Um, I, I always think the folks at Guinness might disagree with that, but they're facing a, a class action lawsuit in the state of California for a little over $150 million. Uh, it was in the news a couple of years ago because they, they can't verify the claim that all of the milk they source to make that butter comes from grass-fed cows. So a lot of times the, the ROI component isn't necessarily easy to calculate. The biggest ROI can be, what does this prevent from happening? I hear you. And also, as, as you're telling those stories, you didn't mention the word blockchain once, or maybe just at the beginning, but actually what you were talking about is the outcomes of putting the capabilities that we have together. So is, we talk about traceability, or we have the ability to verify, or we have a history of certain information, or we can have you know information fed from a sensor that we can then do something else with or we can optimize a system based on um, certain business rules. All of these are digital capabilities, and my take on this, particularly with blockchain, is talk about what are the components of technology that using blockchain or a distributed ledger will allow you to to use in your enterprise or to solve the problem that you're looking at. There are lots of ways that we can do data aggregation, but some of those non-functional requirements might be, I don't want any one party in the ecosystem to see all the data. Right? Or I don't want all the data to be in one place because I don't think that's a good thing. Or we might say, actually, I, you know, I want both to aggregate data and automate activity. Well, I could aggregate things into a portal and then I could put a lot of robotic process automation behind it. You know, and then I could do a manual verification. But actually, well, why wouldn't I try and create a protocol that allows you to do all of those three things in one step? And you've standardized once and you can you can have everybody jump onto that same platform and apply the same standards. I think there's a story under, under implementation of blockchain, which is, yes, you can do it with anything else, 
but people who've got and spent more time in technology architecture will understand that it's very, very inefficient to do it the other ways, but it's not a, a 101 story. You say, well, let me take you down how EDIs work and let me talk about point-to-point -point connections and let me tell you how much of my team's time is spent on maintaining APIs or single interfaces that I have with individual companies. And then let me tell you about standards and standardization. And, and you get down a really very long-winded conversation by which time somebody's already lost interest. Now, I don't know if, if, if that story resonates with you, but it's, it's one of those ones that only the architects can really argue for, but sadly, they don't get the voice most of the time. Yeah, I, I think that is common. You know, it's, it, to me, it, it kind of touches on, on this larger change or evolution that I've seen, you know, which is when I, when I first started my career, information hadn't, hadn't yet become commoditized. And so in the early days of my career, you, you always knew who the smartest technical person at your organization was because um, they were the person with the biggest bookshelf because that's, that's how you acquired IT knowledge. It, it, this, this stuff wasn't out on the internet. Um, so you went and you bought these, these giant tomes uh, from, from the technical bookstore. You know, nowadays, all of that, that information is out there. It's, it's become commoditized. But I think uh, so many times we as, as technical resources still view our value proposition as being the information that we know. Um, how much stuff do I have in my head? If you look at um, still to this day, that the way that, that a lot of organizations conduct technical interviews, they're, they're, it just doesn't align with the age that we live in. Um, you know, asking someone uh, to, to memorize methods from an API or to, to sit down with no internet access and a pen and paper and, you know, write out a block of code or something like that. You know, that's, those are our skills that mattered 30 years ago. They're, they're just not relevant today. The information's become commoditized. And so I think as, as this evolution continues to unfold, we're seeing that our value proposition to the organization as technologists is changing. Um, and we can't just be the repositories of technical information anymore. Um, we start to have to be the ambassadors of it. It's not enough just to know it. How can we communicate that out to the rest of the business in ways that they can understand without sitting there in front of a whiteboard, um, just going through the ones and zeros? And, and so... I've been trying to challenge uh, technologists in the industry to, to reframe their way of thinking. Um, your, your value doesn't come because you're the winning Jeopardy contestant uh, with, when it comes to technical trivia. Um, it comes because you're, you're the best ambassador of what these new tools can do. I think that's so right. And there are various different flavors of architect out there. And as we said earlier in the show, there's some out there who are designed to just look, keep it simple, keep it low cost, run my business, don't add complexity. And these might not necessarily be the guys who are going to be first up, but they're going to have a vested interest at some point because either their business or other parties in the industry or maybe their clients or their, you know, their suppliers come to them and say, as of next week, I need you to either adopt this particular system that allows us to join up across a supply chain or across a network, or the regulator requires that your particular level, whether you be a Fortune 500 company or a mom and pop uh, pharmacy, we need you to run a node on a network because we need to trace by regulatory requirement every particular product that's been through your shop. And that gets into a, a really, you're, you're forced into learning and you, you suddenly, you, you can't hide anymore. You know, somebody who was, I guess, running, running IT landscapes pre-e-commerce would probably be saying, this really isn't something that's going to have to affect me. 
uh, or you know my my online presence or my my web portals or my sales management CRM systems uh, that's not really for us we can get away without them five years later or ten years later either that person's not working there anymore or they've had to go through a dramatic reskilling process because industry and technology has changed really fast and I think we're we're starting to get there you know it's not every industry it's not every domain it's not every use case the premise of this show is not that blockchain will transform everything but as an architect I think it's there's a responsibility to to understand I work in a certain industry what are the general directions of travel in terms of collaboration or cooperation or whatever you care to call it and say how likely is this to be my problem in the next little while? What would need to be true in my industry or with my company for me to then need to know more about this or for this to be the next technology off the roadmap? Not because I want to be innovative, but because actually that's mandated. And I, I think the better architects kind of look two or three years down the road and realize I don't need to invest in it, but I need to understand the implications. Right. You know, and, and I, I'm always very vocal about you know, obviously this, this technology isn't for everyone and that's okay. You know, there, there are some folks, uh, there are even, you know, some technologies for some folks where what makes them happy is, is just going out, um, Googling the problem and, and getting the best practice, getting the answer, getting the recipe and just following it. You know, there, there are certain technologies I've worked with in my life. I've, I've had to work with professionally that I just never found that interesting. I, I never got the passion and, and I very much fell into that camp. And, and so do spill um, the beans, Chris, what are those techn? What, what was it? Was it COBOL? Was it PHP? Go on, go on. Give us the good stuff. Give us the good stuff. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's uh, it was actually back during the the SOA days, um, and there were just so many misguided implementations of of service oriented architecture that you kind of knew as a technologist were never going to bear fruit. That you know, this this was early enough in my career that uh, no one really wanted to hear hear what I had to say. And it was kind of you know just shut up, keep your head down, keep writing code, and uh, yeah, building out some of those those SOA implementations that you knew just were. We're, we're never going to see the light of day. Um, that that was a trudge, and it's it's funny. It, it kind of gave me this question that I love to ask other technologists, and that is, hey, if, if you go back uh, over your whole career and you look at all of the projects you've been a part of, what percentage of those made it into production? And it's it's typically a startlingly low number. Um, I, I would say probably the, the peak of the bell curve, at least in, in the responses I hear, is you know, somewhere between 50 and 75%, which means that if, if that really is reflective of, of the, the larger IT landscape, 25 to 50% of our IT budget is being spent on projects that, that never see the light of day. So I, I don't know, Anthony, I, I'd be curious to, to hear your response to that have, have you noticed a higher lower percentage or, or does that kind of align with your gut feel too so i think in blockchain it's probably going to be lower than that but i think there's a factor in terms of time and i think implementing blockchain is is different to kind of traditional kind of data transformations cloud transformations uh you know front-end builds single sign-on type of programs that you'd see in single enterprise I think what you can observe with blockchain is it's very quick to get to a proof of concept. And I think we're, we've probably done that to death now. I think in 2020, you know, we don't need to prove any more concepts. We can hash stuff. We can put things you know, on multiple different types of ledger. We can add IoT. We can make it immutable. You know, we can make it zero knowledge. 
everybody at this point has built a blockchain for some use case in some industry that's either directly analogous or is the exact use case that, that most of my clients want to talk about. You know, you're then getting into pilot, which is saying, you know, I want to need, I want to use real data. I want to use operational systems. You know, that's that's challenging, but not that challenging in terms of cost and being able to run it on on live live systems. I think that's again probably a three to six month challenge, depending on where you go. And that's that's the logical conclusion of getting past a POC. Challenge oftentimes is, was the POC done with a vision on scaling at all? So saying, okay, well, I'm going to prove concept. I'm going to put something immutably on a blockchain, but actually there's no commercial case for this whatsoever. Um, or you know, to do this, I need MI5, MI6, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and, and the CIA to all work with me to do this particular uh, initiative. And there's not a hope in hell you are ever integrating their IT systems. You know, so so have, have I thought through the POC that can actually scale? Never mind whether it makes any sense to go to pilot. So I think there is an absolutely natural culling of POCs that should be probably something like 10 to 20% should ever get past POC on paper, let alone technically. But then to get from there, if you've understood the, the business case, if you've understood that it's technically feasible, you're probably challenges then twofold, funding and governance. And as we've said plenty of times on this show, getting multiple parties together to co-develop or to co-invest in technology is challenging, it's hard. And it's not that we haven't got to production or we never will, but it's that actually it takes you, you know, three, six, 12, 24 months to get that critical mass together, to get an agreement in place, to get funding in place. So I think we're, we're probably seeing a second wave now where a bunch of the early POCs that had value are finally starting to surface in production or that those things that people have been using blockchain for in pilot are now getting there. Um, and I think in the next sort of six, 12 months, you're going to see a lot more production commentary but it wasn't because the technology wasn't mature it wasn't because necessarily it couldn't be done but that it's hard to do yeah you know you you mentioned two things there funding and governance and i think you know this is another area where where blockchain has just flipped everything on its head it, it used to be that our focus was on funding right we, we've got to convince the cfo to open up the purse strings that's going to be the hard part if we can get him or her to, to go ahead and fund the project, governance, hey, that's, that's easy. We know how to do that. Just go out and, and Google um, IT project governance best practices, and, and we'll just follow whatever comes up in the search results. I, I think blockchain has really flipped that on its head, uh, where, again, if, if you get a smart executive who understands the technology, it, it becomes pretty easy for that executive to see the ROI. Um, but the governance portion becomes uh, something we've, we've never had to deal with before. If you and I represent different organizations and you've got a great DevOps process, it's solid, it's secure, it's efficient, it's well-known, it's well-documented. I've got a great DevOps process. It's great, it's efficient, it works. But our processes are different. Well, we've, we've got to work out that difference. We've got to come to some kind of standardization or alignment or agreement before we can move forward. And these are just things from the governance aspect of an IT implementation that we haven't had to consider yet, which, which to me actually makes the technology really exciting. But we, we are in uncharted territory in that regard. I hear you. And, and there really aren't too many open source playbooks for getting 13 banks together to create a startup. 
you know, or working with you know multiple governments in, in different organisations to share data to reduce fraud or to reduce risk or to combat human trafficking. This is a lot a lot of times new to world organisations, and they are startups. You know, there's different governance models for each. There's different participants for each. There's different regulatory rules for each. You know, antitrust comes to the fore. IP management, GDPR. You know, lots of lots of challenging things, but not insurmountable. And as I said, I think we're going to see a, a lot more in terms of production credentials over the next little while because it's taken you know, a lot of those worthwhile POCs and pilots you know, 12 to 24 months to get to the stage where they deserve to see the light of day. I want to change the tone just a little bit, Chris, because I think we got a little bit deep at the end there. And the point here is really around education, helping people to, to get up the curve in terms of understanding and knowledge and comfort around blockchain. I wanted to ask, you know, obviously, you, you know, you're a trainer, you're an educator. What are some of the tools or the resources that, that you can really enjoy or that you share with your students that, that help them to understand better uh, or use, you know, get their hands on blockchain uh, technology? What are some of the things that you'd recommend people to check out? You know, for me, I, I think probably the, the greatest pool of knowledge out there is just in the community. You know, it's, it's, it's not a particular, you know, blog or, or YouTube channel. I, I, of course, I would definitely recommend uh, Anthony Day's podcast if you're not already tuned into that. But there's, there's just a tremendously good community on, on LinkedIn. And what I really love about that is it, it's a very well-rounded one. You know, you can find the, the blockchain subreddits and those are filled with typically very technical folks, developers, um, solutions architects. Um, you can find the, the YouTube channels where someone will hyper-focus on this technology or that and, and really get down into the bits and bytes. Um, and that's, that's great if you really want to become an expert in something. But I, I think the kind of topics that, that we're talking about, I don't know if there's any better resource than just, just LinkedIn because you get people from so many different backgrounds and you see this technology from so many different points of view, um, not just from the technologist's point of view, but from the, the business point of view as well. And, and we keep talking about the business point of view as, as uh, if it was something cohesive and, and unified and homogenous. But you're going to look at this technology very, very different if you're over in sales and marketing than you will if you're in HR or if you're in finance. So even on the business side, it can be a, a very different nuanced perception um, depending on what your role within the organization is. And I think, you know, just, just generally, I, uh, years ago, I got into photography, kind of a, a fun thing to do when, when I'm outside or traveling around. I won't claim that, that I'm any good at it, but it is something I enjoy. And what I noticed is, is when you start picking up a camera and thinking about taking pictures, uh, it kind of changes the way that you see the world and you look at things different. You look at form and color different. And you, you can't ever really go back. And I, I think technology blockchain is, is kind of the same way. Um, when you start to look at things through that lens, when you start to understand what the technology is about, um, it's impossible, at least for me now, to open up the, the news and read the headlines every day and not find at least one or two stories that have some kind of connection back to blockchain. Um, not, not blockchain stories, but something in my mind where I could go, um, hey, this is where this technology might fit in, or I think I smell a use case there, or um, boy, I bet this narrative would have turned out a lot differently um, had, had this technology been involved somewhere. 
you know, so I, I think just learning what it's about and, and having some of those light bulb moments and letting it slowly wash over you. Um, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to walk away understanding in an afternoon. It, it's a series of realizations, but it, it slowly starts to reframe the way that you see the world. And once it does, I, I think it becomes you know, very obvious where, where the, the good applications, use cases are and, and where maybe the not so good ones are. I love that, Chris. Blockchain is a series of slow realizations. Um, I can definitely, definitely relate to that. I, you know, there's, there's that point where you think you've got it and then you think you know it and then somebody challenges you all over again. I remember having a, uh, a, a kind of quiet lunch with a couple of colleagues in New York around consensus conference about three years ago and really trying to sit down saying, what the hell are we doing? I'm not sure if this makes any sense. Why would anybody invest behind this? Why would this even work? How could you ever get these different people together? Maybe crypto is the, is the the only way for this to go, you know, and then you talk it out and then you kind of bring back a few, you know, you anchor yourself in a few great examples and you remind yourself that you're not trying to solve everything, but you've got a number of, kind of micro components that when you weave them together, they make a ton of sense. And it's like, okay, it's all right. Don't panic. I've still, I'm still, I'm still in the job. I've still got something that I can get up and go and do tomorrow. And this still makes sense, but it definitely has kind of elevated and the story has changed, but always a positive build over probably, I would say three to six monthly cycles for me. And Alison McCauley put out a great article actually a couple of days ago around the, around marketing blockchain. And she talked about agile marketing, but specifically being constantly aware of the different issues, the different feedback loops, rather than saying, okay, well, we've anchored in on this being a particular use for the technology. Let's just go long and hard for that for the next 12, 24 months, put that in all of the uh, marketing campaigns, all of the shotgun, you know, scattergun communications out to the world, and we'll double down on this one. And then six months later, you realize actually the technology is pivoted. And what you thought was going to change and transform the, um, you know, the payments landscape of the world became central bank digital currencies. And you're like, oh, wow, well, that's very, that's very, very different. Actually, you know, maybe the stable coin that we want isn't necessarily, you know, USDT. Maybe we're looking at a European Central Bank delivered stable coin because this actually has to work and embed with the user experience of, you know, everyday banking and the non-blockchain world. As much as we expect it to, to be pervasive, there is the rest of the world that has to still talk to and communicate with us. So I, I thought that was a, a really a really nice way of tying it up. To close out the show, Chris, I want to ask, what are you up to? Where can people find you? Uh, and what have you got going on in your life right now? <laughs> you know, a lot of teaching. Uh, my, my life is either spent in a classroom somewhere or uh, in a plane somewhere uh, flying to the next classroom. But uh, just getting ready to, to fly out uh, Monday, actually. So spend the weekend at home, uh, do my laundry, and then uh, head out Monday out to the UAE for a conference out in Sharza. Be back out there in April for the Future Blockchain Summit. But really, if, if you want to find me, two great places. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search Blockchain Beard Guy. Um, you'll find me right away. Ugliest guy in blockchain. Hard to miss. Uh, and also Blockchain Training Alliance. If you want to learn more about some of the things that we've been talking about in this technology, there are a couple of really good free courses that we've got. Uh, we have a business fundamentals, absolutely 100% free course. If, if you're non-technical and you're just interested in exploring uh, some of the business value behind this a little more, 
Um, if you're interested in, in getting hands-on, if you're a technologist, uh, we have a free class with Hyperledger Composer, um, a, a tool set in the Hyperledger namespace for doing um, rapid prototyping and POCs. So take a look at those. Uh, shoot me a message if, if you have any questions. We're, we're always here to help and um, to be your guides as you uh, start to explore this brave new landscape we're entering. That's awesome, Chris. I, I remember one of one of the most epic photos I think I've ever seen of anyone posting in blockchain was you in Dubai a couple of years ago with an absolutely packed room yourself. And, and for those who've never seen a picture of Chris, you know, he's he's part biker, part startup CEO, CIO, sorry, it's part lumberjack, part Thor, with a little sprinkling of hipster and a little kind of smattering of plaid usually red or blue and you know there's you holding court with what looks like about three or four hundred people all dressed in thobes burkas you know a, a few western looking folk as well the lens flare captured off the beard i, I think it's going to become the thumbnail for this episode um, if you'll let me borrow it i'd love to use it but i hope that your next time out there is as, is as epic as that was because that to me encaptures perfectly what it's like to get training by Chris Bennett. You've got all eyes completely compelled, completely interested and smiling and absorbing everything that you've got to say. And thank you for spending an hour with us. Thank you for all the broader stuff that you do for the community, the vlogs, the content, the training, the posts, all of that. And um, wish you safe travels. Hope it's a great year for you and Blockchain Training Alliance. Say hi to Chad and Melissa from me uh, and the rest of the team. And uh, thanks again for joining the show. Oh, will do. And, and honestly, all the thanks is on this end of the conversation, Anthony. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on the podcast. Uh, so excited that, that you're doing this. And um, I know the content you put out is, is just great. So please let me know anything I can do to, to help support. And to anyone listening, I'll, I'll just reiterate, we're always here to, to help, to answer any questions, to provide me guidance. Um, so, so please feel free to, to reach out anytime. And I'm happy to support you anytime. I'm just so excited that you're doing this. This is cool. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.